I'm going to simply read the first seven verses out of Luke chapter 2. Some of the political environment in this passage of Scripture also gives us some of the time frame around the birth of Christ and some of the location, and there's a lot wrapped up in just those few verses there. So I want to read again for us Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through verse 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So let me begin by asking you this question. Why do you celebrate Christmas? And there's a lot of variety of answers we can give to that. And many of them are not wrong at all. So if you're sitting here today and you're already almost drooling at what you're going to get to eat on Christmas Day, that's okay. Uh, good food is a part of the holiday time. How about presents, what you're going to get? There's something there, probably from everything, that, at least I didn't do a survey, but from everything I know about that, for people who are maybe, and I don't know what age to put there, but from maybe... 15, 16 and under, the presents are the big thing, right? But for those of you who are older, how many of you is it a present you got that's the highlight of what Christmas is all about? <laughs> now, I don't mean to insult people who gave me gifts, and Barbara, I don't mean to offend you either. I have to stop and think for a little while of what, what I got. <laughs> Not that it didn't mean anything. But if I'm here to tell you, okay, this is what I like about Christmas and what I enjoy about it, it's probably the gifts I got are way down on the list. They're just not that high on there. Now, yes, it's a good thing that we do, but it's just like that's not kind of the highlight when I think back over my years of celebrating Christmas, what stands out to me the most. So what does stand out to you? What do you remember? Well, I think many of you, even more than the food, is family times, right? Time you get to spend with loved ones, enjoying just a day off of work, and you just get together, and you just have a good, fun time. And so there's a lot of good family things that we can celebrate about Christmas, but important in all of that is to remember why we have this day. And just a couple weeks ago, I had a rental vehicle. I returned up to a rental place up in Talmadge, Ohio, and I didn't have much time to talk to the guy. But we, we just had this brief little conversation, and we're talking about Christmas, and he's talking about all the people who go out shopping, and he just said people really miss what the meaning of Christmas is. And he's got to do the same with Thanksgiving. Now, I didn't have time to talk a lot with him about that, but I thought, well, his perspective certainly is on cue. Now... We can talk a lot about what's wrong with Christmas. We can talk about all the money that is spent and the credit card debt and on and on and on. 
I want to focus today about what's right about it. I don't want to focus on what I think might be wrong with it because there's a lot that's right about it. Not least of which is when you walk into a store, you hear the gospel presented in song in secular stores that are not Christian at all. Think about the words out of the song, O Holy Night. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And nobody objects this time of the year when they hear that. But in America, I'm guessing a lot of people don't pay attention to what's being played, but a lot of people may at least know the first lines of familiar Christmas carols, and they know the gospel, even if they don't think about it, what they're hearing, they know the gospel, because they know they've heard. Think of joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. And so that's part of what I enjoy. I like the fact that the gospel is being presented around wherever Christmas is celebrated. Whether they do it right or wrong, it's being presented to people, and they're hearing it. And so that's part of what I enjoy about this time of the year is that, and just the time you get to spend with family, but to think about the coming of Christ into our world and remembering why did he come and what do we celebrate? So there's a number of things that I want to look at out of this passage of Scripture because there's a lot of wrapped up within those words of that passage that reveal a lot about what our world is like. So I'd like to look at God's sovereign control, first of all, out of just this passage of Scripture, and then I'd like to look at Christ coming into this world. So a number of things out of this passage of Scripture about God's sovereign control. The first one is that things don't always go as planned when we follow God. You don't get to predict the results of your obedience to God. And many times we would like if we could. So think about this together with me. Mary is a godly young woman, and there's people who debate on her age. Uh, people who understand the culture there will tell you it's very likely she's 12 to 13 years old, and we're kind of like, whoa, that's, uh, but that's what they did back then in that culture. They married incredibly young. We know she's fairly young, but she may be a little older than that, give or take. So she's a young girl, and from Scripture, we also can easily glean that she's a godly young girl. So she is a godly young girl wanting to honor God with her life, and she wants to do what's right. That, I think, is very apparent in Scripture. For a young girl like that who wants to follow God, and you can relate to this here, if you've dedicated your life to God and you want to follow God as a girl, even as a guy as well, but purity is pretty important to you, and you value it and you treasure it, and you're not going to sell it for a cheap price because you believe that's something sacred given to you by God, and you're going to protect it. So Mary is this young girl, she's a godly young girl, and I think we can conclude that purity is important to her. She wants to honor God with her life. And then God appears on the scene, and he says to her, you're highly favored. Now that sounds like a great thing, right? And it is. And she gets the honor out of all the women who've ever lived to give birth to the Son of God, which I cannot wrap my mind around that one. 
And I think for, I'm not a woman, but I think for a woman to realize I literally had the Son of God in my body for nine months and I gave birth to the Son of God is like incredible. So she gets that honor. Now, how many of you know that in life, okay, in the alphabet, A fo- or B follows A and C follows B? How many of you know in life when you do A and B, C does not always follow? We sometimes think it should. But one of the things you learn in life as you go through life is it does not always follow. I'll give you just one quick one for me. Um, I used to kind of hold to the teaching that if you tithe, and there's people who teach this, God will prevent bad things to happen to you financially. Setbacks. Financial setbacks. God will prevent that from happening to you. Things will work out okay. Friday I was at my financial planner's uh, office for an appointment and he just made this comment. He goes, uh, everybody has a $50,000 mistake in their life. Mine wasn't maybe quite 50000 but it was significant. And so I told him about it. We're talking about it. But what I've had to de- learn in my life is that you do A and B and C just doesn't always follow. And many of you have learned that even in raising a family. How many of you as parents have had to adjust some of your ideals about what a family is like because you had kids? See, before you have kids, you have this ideal about how everything will be. And if we do A and B, C will follow, and then you have kids and you learn that I did A and B, but it ended up being uh, M that followed. (laughs) And I don't know how that happened. (laughs) So Mary does the right thing. But what happens to her? Well, she's honored. She has this baby. She's going to have it. But guess what? I mean, she's engaged to be married, and she goes home, and she tells her parents, I'm pregnant. Great news for your girl that's not married, right? And then she tells you, and then your first question is like everybody, who did it? Who's the guy? And she tells you, uh, God. (laughs) Well, you're going to think, poor little girl, she's delusional. I mean, we can't even have an honest discussion about how this stuff happens. God. (laughs) Who believes that? She got a bad reputation. If you go through the Gospels, in John chapter 8, when Jesus is having confrontation with the Jews about who their father is, and he tells them, your father's not Abraham, it's the devil. Now they're talking about, in part, that we're not illegitimate children of God, but they make this biting remark to Jesus that is 30 years after, 33, about 32 years after the birth. They say, we're not born of fornication. I think they're leveling the charge at him. We know how you got into this world, and we didn't get here that way. And it's a biting remark that tells you that Mary probably had to live with a reputation of a girl who had dishonored her purity, and in their culture that was shameful, Joseph could have had her stoned for it under the law. He didn't. But she lived with a bad reputation for probably most of the rest of her life. Because I'm guessing the chief priests and other rulers of the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus always insisted that her Jesus beginning was out of immorality. So think about the reputation that she had to live with, even though she so badly, desperately wanted to honor God and did with her life. She ended up living with a reputation 
that wasn't true, but she couldn't live it down to many people. So she couldn't escape that whole thing and the, what went with it. So things did not always work out. And that's wrapped up in, in the story as we look at it out of Scripture is that in its reality of life, things don't always work out the way we had planned for them to work out. And we have to wrestle with that and deal with that. The other one is it does not always appear that God is in control. So you start that passage of Scripture. It says that Caesar, in the days of Caesar Augustus, Quirinius is governor of Syria, there is this taxation that goes on and everybody is ordered to go to their home village to be registered in a census for the purpose of taxation. So as you look at that, it would appear to humanize that Caesar is firmly in control of the then known world. And everything is going according to the plan that he had laid out. And he is forcing people to make these journeys for the purpose of taxes. So think about it together with me. So your wife is, or your girlfriend at this time, he, Joseph did take her as his wife before Jesus was born, so let's just say his wife is pregnant. They're expecting a child, and then they're ordered by Caesar Augustus, a decree from him to travel uh, 65 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I don't know, did she have a donkey to ride on? Possibly, they didn't have a horse because they weren't wealthy. They were incredibly poor. And they have to make this journey for the purpose of taxation. Let me give you just a few of the taxes that were levied at these people. So they had, some people say maybe an income tax of some sort. But here's taxes that they paid under Roman rule. A head tax for every male member of a household, a land tax, an export tax, import tax, a tax on the importation of slaves, toll roads, toll bridges, and a market tax in Jerusalem. Those are some of the taxes they paid. It is thought that, or estimated that the tax amounted to between 25 and 35 percent for the average Jew. On top of that, you had a temple tax, which was 10%. So as a practicing Jew, not only did you pay 25 to 35% to the Romans, you paid 10% at the temple as a Jew. Now, we pay taxes because we have to, right? <laughs> how many of you are delighted with that? And how many of you would like to take a trip at the worst possible time to pay taxes? You just want to make that trip because you know, your wife is pregnant and then they get to this inn and there's no room. Now, the innkeeper gets a bad rap. How many of you would appreciate it if you checked in to a motel, got a room, you traveled a long way, you got a room, you're in, in your bed, relaxing, and there's a knock on the door and says, you know what? Somebody showed up that needs the room worse than you do. You guys have to leave. So the innkeeper's only doing what a good innkeeper will do, telling you that the rooms are all taken. And so they end up out in a cattle stall. They're in a cave, probably. We've kind of 
sanitize Christmas, it smells clean, and if you were to go over and smell the hay, it smells really good. It's a stinky cattle barn. Probably no time to clean it up for people to stay there. It's not like this cleaned up place. Probably a cave. You made this journey you didn't want to take. And now, of all the nights <laughs> for your baby to be born, it's the night when you spend a night in a barn. Less than ideal. Think about when your first baby was born, for those of you who have children. A lot of preparation goes into that, right? I mean, we... This was back in the day when you stenciled your rooms. We stenciled the, the room before Patrick was born. You buy a crib and you have everything arranged, ready, right? You know the spiel or the ritual you go through. Everything is arranged. So think about them in a barn. Not the place you're going to have want a baby to be born they used midwives back then. We don't know, really. Did they have time to go get one? Or did she, she's in a town she's not real familiar with? And that night, the Son of God is born. The swaddling claws are rags. So think about going into your rag box and getting rags to wrap your new baby because you don't have a blanket, you don't have what's nice. And then think about feeling in that moment, like God's in control of the whole situation. <laughs> it's kind of out of control. Chaotic. Our obedience is also not always immediately rewarded. It's another lesson out of this. You don't obey because you get the reward right away. And sometimes that's how we want to serve God is we want the reward right away. How long did Mary wait to be rewarded for her obedience. <clears throat> if you read through the Gospels, there's occasions, I think there's two, where Jesus' family shows up. Okay, so there's this glorious birth, and angels come and magi, and the prophetic angel came and told her, you're going to give birth to a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, and it's all glorious. Then the guy grows up and he goes out and starts preaching and twice, I think it's twice in the Gospels, his family goes out to bring him home because they think he's losing his mind. Because this son of God is acting a little bit crazy. And so they go home to bring him home to protect himself from himself. because they couldn't figure it out. And I don't think Mary ever figured it out until... Scripture doesn't tell us this happened, but it had to have happened, that after the resurrection, I think Jesus went home and had a long conversation with Mary. Because she stands there at the cross and watches him die. That doesn't make any sense. She watches people, the Romans, brutally beat him and kill him. And all of this was going to be glorious. But by appearance, very little of it was glorious. His life seemed strange. His preaching sometimes good, but sometimes strange. His actions didn't always make sense. And then he dies. 
and it looks like what happened. My guess is those three days when Jesus is in the tomb, Mary is incredibly troubled because it not, it not, not one thing makes sense. Who can understand the plan of God from start to finish? No one. And I don't think anybody had it figured out until Jesus rose from the dead. And I think, you know, Jesus talked to the two men on the road to Emmaus and explained the whole thing to them and told them, this is how it's talked about in Scripture. And I have to believe he did that with his mom because he cared a lot about, for, uh, about her. But for 30-some years, Mary's obedience doesn't appear to be rewarded. It's being rewarded in God's eyes, and she could only see it, I think, as she looked back. And so she obeyed and she followed God. So part of the lesson for all of us out of that is your obedience to God is not always going to be rewarded in ways that you think. Keep following, keep obeying. Ultimately, God rewards. Even when it seems things aren't working out, keep doing what is right because it honors God, and God has a bigger plan. And I want to wrap this up now with the last one of Jesus entering into the chaos of our world. You know what the only thing predictable was about this story? <clears throat> the baby came when it was time. And probably if I'd ask here for stories about that, there's interesting stories. I know in friends I have and relatives, there's some crazy stories about what went on with all that. The baby comes when it's time, and if you're not ready, it's going to happen anyway, and that happened to Joseph and Mary. But Jesus entered into our world to redeem us, to communicate God's love to us, and he did so because we were blind and lost in our sin. Many did not know it, didn't recognize it, but because God could not remain indifferent to our condition, he sends his son into this world in the form of a helpless baby. And so when we celebrate Christmas, if all we think is it's a neat little baby in a manger, and that's what we're kind of worshiping, we're really not worshiping him because he is the risen Christ. And so we celebrate the baby in the light of who he is today. <clears throat> and he came in order that we might have a home. I like what G.K. Chesterton says. It's in a part of his poem called the, the Christmas House. But he says this, and he repeats it twice in the poem, only where he, Jesus, referring to Jesus, was homeless, are you and I at home. Jesus comes into this world, basically does not have a home. He referred to it in his teaching that foxes have a place, and I don't even have a place to lay my head. Foxes have a den to stay in. I don't have a place to lay my head. But think about shepherds coming and worshiping, magi coming and worshiping a baby who has done nothing yet by human eyes to deserve worship, yet they recognize that this is someone who deserves worship. And in him we find what we really long for, which is unconditional love. We find a home. Think about the story of the prodigal son who left the father's house and is welcomed home, and it's all because of Jesus. And so Jesus welcomes people home. And to really celebrate Christmas means that you've given Christ a home in your heart, in your life. And he's at home and at residence there. God bless you. Thank you.